Welcome to episode 275 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. ButcherBox.com slash IFPodcast with code IFPodcast. I will put all this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons 
reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 275 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey, how are you today? I'm doing really great. How about you? I'm doing well. You know, it's amazing how therapeutic a vacation can be. I'm like, I'm ready and rare to go back to work. <laughs> it's an amazing feeling to take time off. Mm-hmm. And it's really important. Like that was one of the things I can tell you when I was traveling, people saying Americans don't seem to do a good job of disconnecting. And I was like, I have to agree with you. And I don't want to be one of those people. Yeah. In my daily life, even and you and I talk about this a lot, like via text. I am so intense with my boundaries surrounding what I know I can do and not do because, you know, you and I both, like we're doing so many things. Like now we have two shows, other projects, you know, presentations, product lines. Like there's, there's so much. I know for me, like I have no shame. People say that they kind of wear not sleeping as a badge of honor. I'm like, nope. Like I need my nine hours and I make that sacred and I really prioritize self-care because I know in the long run, that's what's sustainable. And I think it's important for people not to feel guilty for creating healthy boundaries. Like this is something that I value and appreciate a lot about you and our friendship is that we're both very respectful of one another. And, you know, for me, I have a tendency as a reformed people pleaser to not want to disappoint people. And I, I now understand viscerally what happens to me when I do things that are not aligned with my true purpose and not aligned with honoring what's best and most important for me. And so I, I try to really lean into that and to stop saying yes to things that aren't a hell yes. Like I jokingly always say that when Melanie asked me to potentially consider coming on as a co-host, it was a hell yes. And if it had been any other thing, if I'd had a different reaction, it would have been, thank you so much for this opportunity, but I'm really not interested because if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. There's nothing gray in my life. It's either yes or it's no. And I think that's very important for all of us. And what's interesting, fun fact, as women are getting older, So obviously we're at two different life stages. You know, you're still at peak fertile years. I'm in menopause. As women start losing estrogen and perimenopause, guess what starts to happen? Many of us stop being people pleasers. 
because estrogen is the hormone that generally encourages us to be people pleasing. And as wonderful as estrogen is, when we have less of it circulating, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, that explains why I speak my mind now. That explains why I'm no longer as accommodating. And so really kind of reflecting on the fact that physiologically this starts to happen and, you know, for the way that I was raised, and I'm sure you were probably raised similarly, like as a woman, we were expected to behave a certain way and, you know, present ourselves a certain way. And all those things are, are fine and good. But ultimately, we have to honor who we are as individuals. And healthy boundaries are so important. Like my mom's generation, they just served, 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 served. My mom had a very high profile demanding job. And like when she retired, she lost 20 pounds because she was so stressed all the time. She didn't even realize it. And now she's finally at this healthy weight she wanted to be at for years. And I said, well, it's the lack of stress, you know, that in your life as a retiree, but we don't want to wait till we're in retirement to be in that methodology and, and mindset. So I just wanted to reaffirm how important I think that is to, for all of us, everyone listening, finding ways to honor who we are and to say no more often and not apologize for it. I love hearing that. It's something I, I as well, I'm probably not quite reformed with the, the people pleasing. It can be draining actually, because especially interacting with so many different people all the time and like new people. And I do, I want everybody to just be happy. And normally I feel like everything kind of pans out the way I would like, but I definitely could work on understanding more the role of, you know, saying no and not having to make everybody happy. And it's a struggle. And I do think women, not to make a generalization, but I do think women struggle with this maybe more than men. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's part of our social conditioning. I know that, you know, there were definitely expectations that I was, you know, expected to behave a certain way and look a certain way. And as much as I love my parents, some of that set into motion, that desire to be a people pleaser. And as a nurse and a nurse practitioner, oh my gosh, you are expected to be exactly that. And so when I reflect back on my career, I'm like, why was I so successful at what I did? Oh, because there was a lot of people pleasing going on at whose expense, oftentimes my own. So I think we're all a work in progress, but I think part of it's just acknowledging. I, I never would have described, I would never have thought I was a people pleaser, but retrospectively, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been this way my whole life. I always wanted things to be good and didn't want anyone to have a lot of argumentation or arguing or, you know, dissent. And now I'm like, oh, I understand why I, I created that environment for myself. So, you know, we're, we're all a work in progress and I'm sure I will be working on that for the rest of my existence, but I'm in a, a better position now. But for people that are listening, just understand, you know, Mel and I are real people and we go through that too and just try to find small ways to make sure that you're articulating what needs to happen for you and your lifestyle and, you know, having people that are in your life honoring and respecting the need for you to create boundaries. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. And you touched on the subtle nuance of it all, which is you were saying how it did relate to your success. And so that's, I don't know if that's part of the issue, but that's part of the complexity of it, which is that it does benefit you. Kind of like if you're like a workaholic, like that works, <laughs> like it manifests with career success and such, but at what cost? And so, yeah, it's just, I think, prioritizing self-care, like I said. It's kind of like the the cliche airplane thing about putting on your own mask before others. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to give you one really good example that will be relevant to listeners as well. So I'm getting ready to speak at KetoCon and I'm the first speaker the first day. So like, just like every time I prepare, I like want my talk to be run a certain way, be perceived a certain way. I want it to really be valuable. And there was one graphic that I'm using in my slide deck that I shared on Insta Stories this morning. 99.9% positive reaction, except for the one triggered person who then, you know, vomited in my DMs. You know, the old me would have wanted to explain myself and, you know, identify that her perception was wrong. And then I just decided I screenshotted it, sent it to my team. I said, no one's responding to this. There's no need to. This person was triggered. She has to take ownership of that. 
This is not a representation of me or our brand or us. And that's how I have to perceive it. The old me would have felt a need to explain myself and win her over. And now I'm like, this person doesn't understand the context that this was shared in. I'm talking about metabolic health as wealth. That's the context. That person didn't hear that or see it and just reacted. And so this is a good example of old me behavior versus new me behavior and me feeling very comfortable saying, okay, that person may decide they want to unfollow. They didn't like the whatever it is. That's okay. I'm not for everybody. And that's totally okay. Because I'm coming from a place of education, inspiration, empowerment. Like I want every person who listens to be educated, to take you know, the right steps for their health, to feel inspired, to feel empowered. That's, that's the platform we come from. Will occasionally people miss the mark? Absolutely. But I can't take ownership of that. Yeah, I think that's so wonderful. And it's interesting because this is a concept that prior to social media would not even be a concept. Like prior to social media, you wouldn't have random people coming up to you and expressing their opinion and expecting an answer. Like everything would have been context driven because you'd be talking to people (laughs) first. So I think people don't understand that if they are reaching out with their opinion and especially if it's something that doesn't quite align with, with what you're doing, we get a lot of people reaching out. And so it's not like there's necessarily the time to engage with every single, you know, argument (laughs) brought to us. I was like, bless and release, bless and release. That's my mindset. I'm like, bless and release. (laughs) I love it. Which speaking of sleep, I mentioned last episode, I would talk about something I've been, I think is causing the massive increase on my aura score. So, okay. It's something where, I mean, I feel like it's what it is, but I'm, I'm skeptical. (laughs) So I got connected to this company called Leela Quantum Tech. It's L-E-E-L-A. So I got connected through a fellow, quote, biohacker in the sphere, and I did a call with the founder. It's interesting. (laughs) It's supposed to be dealing with quantum energy and stuff like that, which sounds very, quote, woo-woo. And I talked to the the founder on the phone for a long time, and and he said they've been doing studies on it, and they'll be releasing it. And he said, like, you'll see differences if you actually track and monitor like blood tests or aura ring or whatever. Since using this, I mean, it's great. My aura ring scores have just been really like boosted so much. Are you familiar with this type of stuff, Cynthia? I'm not. I'm, that's why I'm like listening intently. I'm like, tell me more. Okay. So the main device that he gave me is this like, and if you go to their website, you can see what it looks like, but it's this you put it together, it's kind of like a box, a metal looking box thing. It's really hard to describe, but if you look at the website, you'll see it. And you're supposed to just set it down and it does stuff. And it, it's similar to, so I've been using the Somavetic, which was my first experience with something that was supposed to do stuff like this. And that's more for EMF mitigation and it can structure water. And they sent me a unit And I noticed an increase in my aura scores and I was very impressed and I ordered a second unit completely on my own because I felt like it was doing something. But this is like next level. I even had like one night where I was like, this is, I was not set up to have a good night's sleep based on the activities I had done and going out and and drinking and all that and using this. And I was like, I was fine. So they also have like necklaces and they have these cards. And so... I don't know. I'm excited to interview him and ask him a lot of questions. But if listeners would like to give me feedback if they've used something like that before, I did ask him for a coupon code. He said they never, rarely ever give coupon codes, but he said, quote, I guess since we gave a coupon code to Dave Asprey and Luke's story, we'll give one to you. So I was so happy about that. So the link and code for that is you can go to melanieavalon.com slash Leela, that's L-E-E-L-A, and use the coupon code MELANIE10 to get 10% off. So again, that is melanieavalon.com slash Leela, L-E-E-L-A, with the coupon code MELANIE10 for 10% off. So I am so excited about that. It's just funny because I 
I'm like so skeptical because I can't see why it would be doing what it's doing. But the aura scores are just very impressive. Well, I'll have to check it out because, you know, it's interesting on vacation consistently my deep sleep was almost two hours and my REM was no less than 90 minutes. And as a 50 year old, that's pretty darn good. And so I was kept saying to my husband, like, it is possible <laughs> because sometimes my deep sleep will be the area that I'm, I'm constantly tweaking and fine tuning. And definitely with my post vacation viral illness, non COVID, non flu went down the toilet was my deep sleep. Like that was the first thing I noticed that in my temperature and my readiness. It actually didn't give me the option of putting the rest mode on. It just put me into rest mode, which I appreciated because I had a couple of days where I could not pay attention to what my readiness score was. I was like, this is stressing me out. So anything that we can do to improve our sleep quality, I'm all for. Yeah. So, and the actual like numbers difference I've seen on Aura. So I feel like prior to Somavedic, which was the first thing, I feel like I was usually in like the low 70s for things. And then I felt like when I got Somavedic, I started creeping up to higher 70s. And then with this, it's very comfortably in the 80s. And even, so it's up to the point where it'll hit like 89. And I, I'm pretty sure the um, the algorithm of Aura, I know for the sleep, I'm not sure about for the readiness score, but I think they probably relate because the sleep is affected. It would affect the readiness because of how late I go to bed. Even if I have like a perfect sleep cycle, like everything could be perfect. It basically detracts points <laughs> because I go to bed so late. The only time I ever get in the nineties for sleep is if I had to go to bed early for something then I will get in the 90s. But so basically I approach the limit of what I think or will give me ever since using this. So I don't know. I would love to hear listeners thoughts if they've used something like this before. Do you want to know something I realized when I was six hours ahead of the world from you is that we were awake at the same time. <laughs> I was literally like texting you. I was like, she's awake right now. And it's like, oh, it's because it's some godly it's like, it's like 3 a.m. here. And I'm away. It's like morning here and Melanie's still awake. Yep. Yep. So I did ask when I had Harpreet on the show, I asked him that about the score. I was like, is it impossible for me to get basically a perfect sleep score? And he's like, yep, because of how I go to bed. All right. Shall we answer some listener questions for today? Absolutely. So to start things off, we have a question from Celeste and the subject is medications. And Celeste says please help me. How can I find out which medications can interact with fasting? I'm specifically wondering about gabapentin. I heard it raises your insulin. I've conducted research, but I can't find anything that addresses it. Again, please help me. I've hit a plateau and I'm clean fasting for 20 hours a day and I have a three to four max eating window. Thank you. And I will say before you jump into this, Cynthia, I'm excited to hear. So we haven't answered a question about gabapentin on the show before, but we've answered questions a lot about medications and fasting, but it's exciting to have you on now because it's like we get to revisit all these questions and hear a potentially new perspective. I would love to hear your perspective on medications in general while fasting. And then I know you did some research on gabapentin. Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, most of the questions that I receive across social media and even in my groups are relevant to hormones. By this, I mean thyroid medication. Maybe someone takes progesterone. Maybe someone is taking oral contraceptive, etc. Now, I'm the first person to say that if, you, if you've been prescribed either a synthetic or a non-synthetic hormone and you've been directed to take it on an empty stomach like thyroid medicine, I do not believe that breaks your fast. I, I, I don't want anyone to get so focused or fixated on minutiae or like little details that are not going to really impact your fasting in a negative way. I take thyroid medication every single morning. I take it on an empty stomach, because that is where how you have to have it prescribed. For that reason, I tell everyone, do not let this be of concern. Specifically to gabapentin, as one example, I did some research on this, and there is an observed causal relationship between the use of gabapentin and the potentiality of some degree of insulin resistance, although they don't understand the mechanism of action. Meaning, 
there's been a little bit of research. There have been anecdotal, meaning there are clinicians who have reported they suspect there's this interrelationship between the utilization of gabapentin, which is used for neuropathic pain, and people that have developed insulin resistance. Now, there are so many things that impact insulin resistance. When they talk about correlation is not causation, we talk about this causal relationship it's because they can't necessarily say it's directly attributable to the gabapentin use. I think when someone is dealing with chronic pain, what we're really talking about is if you have a heightened pain response, you are dealing with a heightened level of cortisol. What does cortisol do chronically over time? It's going to raise blood sugar, which could potentially lead to blood sugar dysregulation, which could reduce the sensitivity of insulin sensitizing cells on the cell receptors, excuse me. And in lieu of that, we could then make poor quality choices when it comes to food. We don't crave broccoli and chicken when we're stressed or when our blood sugar is dysregulated. We're going to crave things that are not going to serve our blood sugar regulation really in the best, the best light. So there's a couple things that could be going on here. I did read that there's a clinical trial that was done prior to bringing this drug onto market, which reported there was some degree of insulin resistance, but there's not a lot of research demonstrating that there is this interrelationship. So what I'm trying to say here is there's enough information reported that is suggestive that there may be this relationship. Obviously, the N of one, the power of you as an individual, bioindividuality is critically important. Now, I don't know your age. I don't know how physically active you are. I don't know what your macros are during your, your feeding window. There's a lot that could be at play. If you are a perimenopausal or menopausal female, you are more prone to insulin resistance already. As you are having those fluctuations in estradiol, progesterone, et cetera, you are going to be more at risk for insulin resistance just by virtue of a hormonal dysregulation. If you're dealing with chronic stress, if your sleep's in the toilet, if you're doing the wrong types of exercise, if you're not consuming an anti-inflammatory diet, you are going to be at greater risk for insulin resistance. So if you see from, if you can hear from what I'm saying, it may not just be the gabapentin. If you are dealing with chronic neuropathic pain, that could be contributing as well. I was prescribed gabapentin after my hip surgery. I only took it for a couple of days. Thankfully, I didn't need the narcotics and the gabapentin for very long. I didn't see any changes in my, my glucometer or anything, but that's not to suggest if this were something I needed to take every day, that that could potentially impact my blood sugar in negative ways. So we need more information. What's your blood sugar like? Are you seeing differing trends? What's your in fasting insulin like? What is your A1C? What are your inflammatory markers showing? So there's a lot here that you may be able to discuss with your prescribing provider, may be able to do on your own so that you have information. You know, have you seen weight changes? Are you seeing non-scale, you know, scale victories that are changing? The other thing that I always think about when someone has a very short eating window, are you getting enough food in your eating window? Does your body perceive that you are not getting enough food in? And that is why you are starting to see some degree of insulin resistance. So there's a lot that could be going on here, but I think the big takeaway is if you've been prescribed a medication that you need to take, I don't want anyone worrying that it's going to break your fast. That's number one. Number two, there's enough anecdotal and observational data about gabapentin, but we also need to be thinking about what else can be contributing to insulin resistance. It has been my clinical experience that when people have chronic pain, they don't move as much. They're not as active because they're in pain. And you know, just the heightened cortisol impact and the dysregulation of your blood sugar could also make you more likely to become insulin resistant. So just some things to think about. Obviously, when, when listeners are sending in questions, please don't feel like you can't share a little bit more about you know, your personal circumstances, not enough so that you feel like you're, you're disclosing things you're uncomfortable with, but you know, give us age ranges, let us know what stage of life you're in. It allows me to have some context so that I can answer these questions a little bit better. But here's my other big takeaway about medications in response to feeding and fasting windows. Some medicines you have to take with food eat it in your feeding or consume it during your feeding window. Sometimes you need to have the food to buffer 
what you're taking. Like I, I was on a medication last week that I had to take with food. And so I waited till I opened up my feeding window and I took the medication with my food, which helped slow the absorption and allowed me not to get nauseous or have any side effects. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 15% off my favorite blue light blocking glasses ever. So I am often asked, what are my favorite quote, biohacking products, and something I truly, honestly cannot imagine my life without are blue light blocking glasses. So in today's modern environment, we are massively overexposed to blue light. It's a stimulating type of light, which can lead to stress, anxiety, headaches, and in particular, sleep issues. Blue light actually stops our bodies from producing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So our exposure to blue light can completely disrupt our circadian rhythm, make it hard to fall asleep, make it hard to stay asleep, and so much more. Friends, I identify as an insomniac. I would not be able to sleep without my blue light blocking glasses. I also stay up late working and wearing blue light blocking glasses at night has made it so I can do that and still fall asleep. My absolute favorite blue light blocking glasses on the market are Bond Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. Bond Charge makes an array of blue light blocking glasses in all different designs so you can truly find something that fits your style and reap all of the benefits of blue light blocking. They have their clear computer glasses. You can wear those during the day, especially if you're looking at screens all day to help with anxiety, headaches, and stress. They have their light sensitivity glasses. Those are tinged with a special yellow color, scientifically proven to boost mood, and they block even more blue light. Those are great for the day or evening. And then they have their blue light blocking glasses for sleep. Those are the ones that I put on at night while working before bed. Oh my goodness, friends. It's something you truly have to experience. You put on these glasses and it's like you just tell your brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep soon. They also have amazing blackout sleep masks. Those block 100% of light with zero eye pressure. I wear this every single night and I don't know how I would sleep without it. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. All right, now back to the show. Melanie, I'm curious, what are what is your take? Did you find anything out about gabapentin that I didn't already mention? Not about gabapentin. I do want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate you researching that. So that was fascinating. I did not know any of that. My thoughts are, you kind of touched on this, but I think people get really wrapped in their head about this idea of something like medication potentially, quote, breaking fast. And what's interesting is unless it's like, you know, with a food, which would be a different situation, but like a medication. So like a signaling molecule for your body, even if that does raise insulin or have hormonal effects, which wouldn't be ideal, raising the insulin, in my opinion, and this would be a little bit complicated, but that's not technically breaking your fast. And what I mean by that is you could do exercise and, you know, increase cortisol or increase blood sugar levels completely independent of food. So like the insulin levels in your body, which are fluctuating, the blood sugar levels of your body, which are fluctuating, a lot of factors can affect that, including medication. That doesn't mean you're not fasting. Even if your insulin level goes sky high, you're just fasting with an insulin level that went sky high, which again, not ideal but it's just a reframe of the quote, breaking the fast. And I know she didn't use the terminology breaking the fast. She said, interact with fasting, which would be what's going on. I just wanted to speak to that. And actually I was thinking a lot about this because listening to Peter Tia's most recent episode with Stefan Guillen, have you listened to that one? So good. I'm almost done. It's really long. I really want to interview him. He sounds young. I'm so confused by him because he... I've been following him for a long time. It's Stefan, I think. Stefan, not Stephen. Stefan. He seems like what you just said. <laughs> he seems so young, but he's friends with all the people. And like he was on Joe Rogan with Gary Tobbs. There's an interview with Gary Tobbs and Stefan Guillenay. Yes. So I just confirmed it. And this was a while ago on Joe Rogan. And I just remember because Gary's 
Gary says at one point, because they, they have a, a thing between them now, Stephen Guillen and Gary Tobbs. A thing as in like a negative thing? A negative thing, yes. Yeah, so they have a some sort of thing that happened between them. So the interview, I've listened to it twice, which says a lot because Joe Rogan's interviews are long. And it's just interesting because Gary says at one point, it's so funny the way he says it. Like they're talking and then Gary's like, <laughs> he's like, what happened with us? Like we used to be buddies <laughs> and it's so precious. But what's interesting about it is he makes it sound like they go way back. So I'm like, wow. And that was a while ago even. So I don't understand how Stephen Guillenay has, he must be way older than he looks and sounds. He sounds very young, but then, you know, I, I have to understand that this is so for anyone who's listening, who's middle-aged you don't think of yourself as old as you are. So in my mind, like when I hear someone sounds really young, I'm like, are they really young or do they just have a youthful voice? (laughs) And so when I heard him, I was like, God, he sounds like he's like a postdoc. Like maybe he's like 30, but clearly if he's on Rogan and he's hanging out with Gary. And he's on Rogan a while ago with Gary talking about how way back in the day they used to be buddies. So like he's been been around. You should Google how old he is. I'm trying to figure it out. So the recent episode on Peter Tia is Stefan Guillenay. And did you get to the part yet where they talk about semaglutide? Yes, because I get so many questions about that drug. So that really got me thinking because I they actually address this in the show, but I had not gotten to the point yet where they address this, but they had brought it up, semaglutide, which is a weight loss drug. So then I was googling it and it talks about how what it does is it raises your insulin and i was like well that's interesting peter says that when people are on it long term it goes down and that's probably not the actual main mechanism of action what were you going to say no it's interesting because i've i've had patients who have been prescribed it by other providers and the two big takeaways are Number one, they stop eating as much because they're horribly nauseous and then they get horribly constipated because it slows gut motility. I saw that. I always think to myself, my gosh, I mean, if you've got, if you're trying to lose weight, I can think of a lot of other ways that won't make you constipated and nauseous as a side effect. People are losing weight and they're so fixated on that as opposed to the side effects that, you know, on a lot of levels, I think it's it's the, kind of the traditional, this is what Western medicine does. They create a drug to treat a problem, quote unquote, that lifestyle could probably fix more effectively and long term. Yeah. You know, it sound, I looked it up and I was like, this sounds miserable. <laughs> but what's interesting and what we can think about thinking about this drug is, so that's a drug that literally raises insulin. Apparently it also increases insulin sensitivity. So you're just using insulin. Like it seems like it's a little bit more complicated than it just raises insulin, but that would be a situation where looking at it from the outside, you'd be like, oh, this is something that really quote breaks the fast. And yet it has the effect of actually expediting weight loss. Point of all that is that I wouldn't stress as much about medications breaking a fast, but have the understanding that the medication you're having might, like Celeste says, interact with your fasting and may make it easier or harder accordingly, depending on what it's doing. Yeah. But don't, you know, I think the biggest takeaway, because people can get fixated, like I've had people send me DMs, like, if I brush my teeth, does it break my fast? And and in a lot of levels, I appreciate the attention to detail, but it also shows me that there are people out there who are stressing about everything. And and that's not the place I want people to come from. I want them to feel that fasting is something they can do that supports a healthy lifestyle as opposed to making them feel like they have to be fearful about everything that they come in contact with. That's my big takeaway. And I'm glad you brought up the brushing the teeth thing because I think something important to keep in mind is that there's different phases of insulin release. And so there's this phallic phase insulin response. And basically, if you're exposed to a cue that would have been the beginning of a meal. So now today we might get that by like brushing our teeth with something that's has a flavor or walking by a store that has smells. Um, the body can release a, a small amount of insulin that it basically has primed and ready. And it's in that first phase of your insulin response. But what's nice is that 
it's kind of like there's a cap, like it only has like a, a little bit ready and waiting. And that's separate from the insulin that would be released when you actually eat. So it's not like you have this exposure and then your body just goes into the main action of releasing insulin. It's probably that that um, cephalic phase insulin response, which is temporary and doesn't necessarily speak to an elongated insulin response. So shall we go on to our next question? And thank you again for researching gabapentin. Yeah, absolutely. I was happy to do that. We have a question from Tina and the subject is protein for vegetarians. And Tina says, hello, Melanie, I've been listening to your podcast and I have enjoyed the down to earth and common sense advice given on the show. I'm very excited to have Cynthia on board. I've been looking her up on Insta and listening to her podcast, and it's prompted me to write in with a question I've been wanting to ask for ages. I'm a vegetarian who also increasingly does not eat eggs. This is a lifestyle and personal choice for me, and I would never go back to eating meat or fish again. I do eat eggs on very rare occasions, but they are definitely not a daily or even weekly food source for me. I do consume dairy, but not a huge amount. I'll drink oat milk, but this is also not part of my general diet. I do consume Skyr yogurt quite regularly. So you could say I'm almost vegan apart from the Skyr and sometimes Greek yogurt or even Indian homemade yogurt, which we call, and I've never known how to say this. Is it dye? I think it's dye. My question is, where do I get my mass intake of protein that you and Cynthia advocate? Everything protein-esque also has quite high carb content, like lentils and quinoa, and nuts have high fat. And none of these have anywhere near the same protein composition as animal sources. Do you have any recommendations or anything that I am not thinking of? Do I just have to live with having a probably lower protein intake than a meat eater? And should I just focus on getting as much as I can through the yogurt and the lentils? I feel that I'm not able to implement your advice around macros being a vegetarian. I'm 42 years old, five foot two, live in the UK, have been IFing for a while, lost a huge amount of weight in a short amount of time through Dr. Michael Mosley's Fast 800 regimen in the summer of 2020. Then faced the holiday seasons and work stress and emotionally late night binge, ate my way back up to a higher weight by spring 2022. Now that the latest period of work stress is over, I'm focused again on my healthy eating choices and I'm doing it slow and steady and focusing on clean fasting, healthy food choices, whole, real, very unlimited ultra processed foods, eating to satiety and focusing on mindset rather than the calorie counting fast weight loss method advocated by Dr. Mosley. I've only lost around two pounds in around six to seven weeks, but I'm not focused on the weight loss and rather want to achieve a sustainable lifestyle. I feel that increasing protein consumption will help. And after any advice that you're able to please offer many thanks in advance, my origins are Northwest India, where the majority of people are non-egg eating vegetarians, definitely dairy consuming. I remember you used to talk about eating the same foods as your ancestors. So I wonder if this is also relevant information. Thanks so much in advance. If you do get around to answering my question, either way, I listen every week. So I definitely won't miss it, even if you answer in a year's time. All right, Tina, Cynthia, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, Tina, thank you for your thoughtfully and carefully worded question. I thought about this at great length, and I, I want to respect and honor your desire to do a primarily plant-based diet. I think the challenge that I always have when young women, and you are a young woman, when young women are wanting to eat predominantly a plant-based diet, you're now 42, so perimenopause years. And this is a time when we tend to be more becoming more prone to insulin resistance. And so when we're talking about plant-based protein, we're really looking at things like, like you mentioned, nuts and seeds, which can be a little bit calorically dense. I think about things like nutritional yeast, which when you look at the macros on that, about 16 grams will work out to be eight grams of protein. Beans and lentils, as you mentioned, some of the ancient grains, hemp seeds, which two tablespoons of those will give you about eight grams of, of protein. And that tends to be a complete plant-based protein. And then I think also about things like spirulina. But always my greatest concern for my plant-based females is how are they going to be able to get enough protein in and not completely create a circumstance where they're going to be consuming so many carbohydrates that it's going to put them at a disadvantage metabolically. 
So I did a podcast with Dr. Rita Marie Scalzo. I did that last year. We'll include that in the show notes. And she's actually a physician that is plant-based keto and has been for a long time. And we have had a lot of really good, vibrant discussions. She's actually in her 60s and looks amazing. And she's usually my go-to resource. If I have someone who really wants to be dedicated, either ketogenic, low-carb, and plant-based she eats a lot of seeds and nuts, has created a lot of like delicious recipes. And and she probably is not hitting the protein macros that Melanie and I embrace, but that is what works for her and her methodology. And so we definitely want that to be available as a resource. I'm not a huge fan of soy. I don't know what uh, Melanie's position is on this, but for me, I'm not a fan of soy, genetically modified, et cetera. I'm not sure how different that is in the in the UK, if it's any different here than it is in the United States. You know, my other thing that I, I get concerned about is just the, the issue with sarcopenia. So you're in perimenopause, this, you know, 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, and after the age of 40, we start to lose muscle mass. It's not a question of if, but when. And the way that we help maintain muscle mass is eating enough protein, lifting heavy weights, lifting, doing strength training, and getting enough sleep. And so if you're not able to get your protein macros where we have ideally kind of identified them, I would really encourage you to make sure that you're really leaning into you know, doing some type of weight training, even if it's weight bearing exercise to start, because the more muscle mass you have, the more insulin sensitive you will be. Let me say that again. The more muscle mass you have, the more insulin sensitive you will be. This is critically important. There is not a woman listening to this that doesn't need to understand. We need to maintain muscle mass as we get older. What starts to happen after the age of 40 is we start replacing adipose tissue with that muscle mass. So we start losing more insulin sensitivity. The other thing that I get concerned about, and you know, during my cardiology experience, which most of my, uh, my nurse practitioner years were working in, in cardiology clinic, both in hospital-based medicine and clinical cardiology. And I had the experience of working in Washington, D.C., where it was a, it is a very multicultural city. So I had the opportunity to work with a lot of different ethnicities, races, etc. And I had many South Asian physicians I worked with. And so I feel very confident saying one thing that's interesting, if you look at the research that South Asians are prone to insulin resistance. And they think some of this is epigenetic, meaning, you know, some of it is genetic-based, genetic-mediated things that we inherit. Some of it gets turned on in expression to things we're exposed to in our environment or in our food, et cetera. They talk a lot about this thrifty genotype and it, it might be why some South Asians are more prone to insulin resistance because their their bodies have gone through periods of you know, generationally have gone through periods where there's been a lack of access to food and then there is access to food. And so there's a higher prevalence of diabetes and insulin resistance. And this is something that they anticipate will continue. We'll link some some research articles that I was looking at in anticipation of this question. And I just think, you know, you you do the best with what you have. So you know that you you have a desire to no longer consume animal-based protein and you occasionally eat eggs. So you have to really lean into eating as much protein as you can plant-based without disrupting your blood sugar, which out, without becoming insulin resistant. That podcast that I mentioned, we'll make sure is linked in the show notes so that you can listen to that. Dr. Rena Marie is an excellent option, but I think you're probably going to have to do a little bit of experimentation, but I think it'll be very unrealistic to think that you can hit 100 grams of protein a day with just plant-based protein. I think you'd either have to be eating constantly or you would really be detrimentally impacting your macros by like way too many carbs and way too much fat. So I think it's going to be a very delicate balance. It's not impossible to try to find the right balance for you, but I, I think given your your origin story that you, sh- you so graciously shared, just really being very mindful of the fact that uh, you are going to be more prone to insulin resistance just based on your country of origin and and the research that's being done in that area and how many thin South Asian patients I took care of that were insulin resistant. It, you know, they always talk about tofi, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And a lot of the Indian physicians I worked with used to talk about this, that we had to always be anticipatorily assuming, don't assume because you have a thin patient that they don't have insulin resistance. So I would make sure you have a conversation with your internist, your primary care provider about 
markers to be looking for inflammation and insulin resistance. And we've talked about these in a lot of the podcasts, trying to be as proactive as possible. So hopefully that was a helpful bit of information. Melanie, I'm sure you probably have some insights as well that you probably will want to add. I find it so fascinating, the different body types and especially how they might relate to ethnicity and the potential implications on metabolic health. And like you said, it's really ironic because a phenotype that is naturally thin and maintains a thin body, on the one hand, it may be a person that's very metabolically healthy, but then on the other hand, and this is what you're talking about, especially with the Asian population, basically they they don't easily make fat cells, like new fat cells. So if they're consuming a diet that is an excess of energy, rather than creating new fat cells, which would be protective in the short term, because that would allow an absorption of that extra energy, they just don't. So it leads to elevated blood sugar levels and metabolic issues. And it can create this, like you said, like it, you don't see it on the outside, but they can be very, they can have metabolic syndrome on the inside. So it's really, really interesting. It's interesting to think how obesity in a way is protective against metabolic syndrome until it's not anymore. And it's not when you hit that point where you hit that limit of, you know, the body can no longer absorb the extra energy and people who are metabolically that phenotype where they just don't do that. They hit that at a very thin body weight, potentially. It's so fascinating to me. You did a great explanation of a very complicated concept. There's this one, I always mention it. Peter Tia has one episode with, I don't want to say the wrong person. I think it's Dr. Schumann, but I'm not sure. It's basically a, like a two hour episode just about this concept. But basically that's what it boils down to is that, that concept. I need like a whole year of my life to catch up on Peter Atia. It's like now I find like I get like 30 minutes here and there. I'm like, okay, I got 30 minutes down. I got, I need an hour and a half more to get through this podcast. You know, actually my, my daily, cause I listen to certain podcasts during the day and certain ones at night. And so I always listen to his new episodes, but then when I run out of new episodes of the like five or so consistent shows I listen to then I go and I'm working my way back through his Q and A episodes. I'm halfway back. I'm going backwards in time. It's kind of fun. Yeah, he's amazing. But yes, so appropriately enough, I already mentioned this episode, but that Rhonda Patrick episode with Stuart Phillips, although we were talking about that last week, I think. Last week I mentioned an episode that Rhonda Patrick did with Stuart Phillips and it's all about protein intake and muscle and all of that. And he actually talks about this because she asked him, what does he think about protein intake on a vegetarian or vegan diet. And he said that his thoughts surrounding it have actually changed because he used to think that it was not really possible or sustainable. But now with the evolution of food products, (laughs) now it is more possible to for vegans and vegetarians to get higher protein intakes because we have food processing. So now we have, you know, protein powders and basically there are options that can work. And and Cynthia was mentioning some, but I was just thinking, so there's like, you can get rice protein powder. And, and for all of these, I would really look up the, the source and make sure it's organic and something that you feel confident is tested for toxins and things like that. You know, there's rice protein powder, there's pea protein powder. You mentioned nuts being fatty. There's actually defatted almond protein powder. Since you're doing eggs, you could do egg white protein powder. That might be a good option for you. There's pumpkin seed protein powder. I actually have one of those that I really like. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So I've done two episodes with people who also had their own protein powder, which was a complete protein powder, all nine essential amino acids and vegan. One was with John Jaquish and then one was with David Minkoff. David Minkoff's episode was all about this. That might be a good episode to listen to, but his is called Perfect Amino. So if you go to melanieavalon.com slash perfect amino. You can use the coupon code melanieavalon to get a discount on that. So that might be something to try. And just a thought I have surrounding all of it. And this is something that I interviewed Simon Hill recently, who's big in the vegan world. And we had a really good nuanced discussion about this concept, which is that people like to think 
that in order for a diet to be an ideal diet, that it wouldn't require supplementation or it wouldn't require kind of like finessing it to actually work. And so that we see that with like veganism or vegetarianism or potentially even something like carnivore to me. And this is just my opinion. I'd be curious your opinion, Cynthia. To me, I don't have any issue with like, say you're following a vegan diet and in order to make it give you adequate protein intake, you eat these protein powders or, you know, you do something to reach what you need. I don't have any problem with that. (laughs) Like, I think people think that it has to necessarily work as like whole foods only. I am more a fan of whole foods, but people may think that it's a wrong diet because you can't get it all from foods. But just in general, it's hard to get all of our nutrition today, especially with our nutrient depleted soil. So the point of that is I don't have an issue of people being super aware of this issue and making sure they hit what they need with their diet, especially if it's like they're doing it out of, you know, culture or ethics or personal reasons. So I do think it's possible, Tina, but I think it will take, you know, you'll have to focus on it. I think that's correct. And I'm a realist. I tell everyone that, you know, I have whey protein powder in my house because three out of four of us tolerate dairy by not being one of them. I have protein powder that I use on occasion. I don't use it every day, but sometimes that's how I choose to break a fast. Sometimes that's how I get my macros in. I am a a fan and a proponent of a less processed, nutrient-dense, whole foods diet, but I'm also a realist. And I think the only concern I have about a lot of the vegetarian, plant-based protein options is just making sure you get it from a really high-quality source because I think even pea protein can be highly contaminated, even if it's organic. And so same thing with rice, with arsenic. And those are the things I would just say are are my concerns. But beyond that, there's no judgment. And I respect and honor where people are in time and space. I'm glad you said that because that made me think of two other things. I did want to focus on, she was talking about yogurt and Greek yogurt, because I know one of her concerns is getting protein without necessarily high carb or high fat as well. So I'm sure she probably knows this, but you you can get basically fat-free yogurt that is well, I guess it would have carbs too, but you can get very high protein, not too high carb yogurt, especially with the Greek yogurt. And then you had asked me about my thoughts on soy. My opinions have been evolving a little bit. So I used to be very much in the camp of being very concerned with soy. And I am still very concerned with soy. I believe it's the most genetically modified crop that there is. And I'm suspicious on a lot of the literature showing the beneficial effects across the board on soy. I think a lot of it probably has to do with, so So a lot of the benefits of soy are attributed to something called, I think it's equal production. So it's this compound that's created when your gut bacteria digest soy. You actually have to have the gut bacteria that create that compound. And so that's one of the reasons, so Asian populations, for example, are high in this bacteria And so that might be one of the reasons they benefit so much from soy compared to, you know, like us Americans. If you don't have that gut bacteria, you're not going to get that beneficial effect from soy. So I think that's something huge to keep in mind. Also, like traditionally fermented soy and things like tempa. Tempa might be something to try, Tina, because you can find some good fermented non-GMO tempa that would be high in protein. The way my thoughts have been evolving is I did interview Dr. Neil Bernard on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, and he is very big in the vegan world. He actually specifically wanted to come on just for his study about soy, a soy inclusive vegetarian diet and it's vegan diet, I think, and its effects on menopausal symptoms. And his study has a a very big flaw, which I asked him about, which is that he had no control group to compare a vegan diet without soy. So he just compared a vegan diet with soy to a standard American diet, which so I don't know how you can attribute anything to the soy specifically and not just the vegan diet with soy. But in any case, in prepping for that show, I really tried to go through the literature on soy and I walked away feeling less apprehensive than I was because there is a lot of good literature on beneficial effects from soy. But I think context is so key and I think a lot of it today is you know, genetically modified and processed and possibly might be more estrogenic than 
the way it's advocated, which is as a phytoestrogen, which would modulate your estrogen levels. And I feel like I'm getting very long-winded. Basically, I'm I'm on the fence <laughs> about soy. I don't love soy, but having said that, the really cool thing about having our other podcasts is it gives us opportunities to connect with individuals that can change our perspectives. And we're both open-minded enough to be able to facilitate that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there there's a lot that could be said here and and hopefully we were able to answer her question in a very thoughtful way that will be really, really helpful. But we'll make sure all those links are included to podcasts I've done and Melanie has done and products that we've talked about. And gosh, we have so many great questions. We have not yet answered. We rest assured that we're trying to make sure that we are answering these as thoughtfully and as deliberately and as helpfully as possible. We really do put a lot of love and effort into this podcast and we hope that it shows. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into to ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream, so that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market, and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains eight forms of magnesium in their most absorbable forms, so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption, as well as chelated manganese, because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers, including rice, which is very, very common in a lot of supplements, including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens, as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market, and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium 8 at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, serapeptase. You guys love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I just want to say thank you, Cynthia, because it does really show. I'm just so happy. It's been really exciting to have the evolution of this show and I'm really, really enjoying our conversations and I so appreciate all of the research that you've been putting in. And I, I really feel like we're, I hope, I feel like we're really benefiting listeners. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for us to do our, our next call together so that we can uh, dive into some other topics that I was, you know, super prepared. You know what it is? I think we go into such depth in our explanations that, you know, we're averaging like two, probably two questions for each episode, but maybe we'll be able to squeak a third in. I think it's all amazing content. So, all right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, those show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 275. They'll have a full transcript as well as links to everything we talked about, which was a lot of stuff. So definitely check that out. 
If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon and Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. Okay. I think that is everything. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, just excited to dive into more questions next time. I know. And to have fun in Austin. Yeah. I'm, this is this is the biggest group of people I've spoken in front of in real life ever. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like 2,500 or at KetoCon. It's kind of cool. Oh, that's very exciting. How many people when you did your TED Talk? How many people? 500, I think. And I, I think about that now and I can't even watch that. Really? But no, because I, I think I, I think because I'd been so sick. Like it was only 27 days after I left the hospital, I got up on that stage. And so when I think about it, it's a little overwhelming. I'm like, okay, my brain had not caught up with my body, clearly. So when I watch it now, I'm just like, oh, yikes. <laughs> well, clearly it panned out fine. Nobody picked up on it because you have what, like 11 million views? Yeah. It, so it's funny. My 14-year-old likes to pay attention. I think he said it's like 11.5. It's just, yeah, it's not slowing down. It's amazing. It's so cool. Well, congrats. Thank you. Well, happy travels and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.